Only on a Sunday, a podcast about more than church. Welcome to the Only on a Sunday podcast. My name is Daniel Lowry. This podcast is an extension of the SCV Underground, whose mission is to catalyze gospel movements in Santa Clarita, Los Angeles, and beyond. We discuss all things gospel movements, what they are, methods for bringing them about, and hearing stories from practitioners in the field. Today, we are joined by Lance Ford. Lance dedicates his efforts to providing resources and training to churches and leaders globally, fostering missional living. He earned a master's degree in global leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary and is currently working on his PhD. He spent more than 20 years in the local church as a pastor and church planter and co-founded the Centralized Conference in Kansas City. He has authored numerous books, including Unleader, Next Door as It Is in Heaven, and Starfish in the Spirit, which he co-wrote with Alan Hirsch. His latest book, entitled The Atlas Factor, is available February 16th, 2024. Lance, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I I, I was just sitting, sitting here as I was reading this thing. I've like I've read all of your books. I'm almost <laughs> done with the Atlas Factor, but I've read I've read each and every one of these. So I feel like I've I, I I've got a good good handle on kind of where you're coming from, and I've really enjoyed reading your books, and they've been very shaping for me and congregations that I've pastored in the past. So I wanted to say thank you for that. Man, I really appreciate that. But uh, you spoke at my church many, many years ago, and you shared a story about a gentleman that you used to, a neighbor gentleman, and it was maybe the funniest story I've ever heard. <laughs> Could you just share share that story with our audience? Because they need to hear it too. Yeah, well, Daniel, you know you know us pastors, I mean, being one, some stories you tell, you kind of got to extrapolate a little bit to make them worth telling or whatever. And I always preface this story by saying, I, th- th- this is what happened. This is the way it went down. I didn't have to work. I didn't have to punch this one up at all because this is what happened. We were living in Kansas city at the time and our neighborhood across the street from us, we had never really gotten to know those neighbors very well. And my wife and I were empty nesters, and we knew a lot of our neighbors. In fact, the the book you mentioned, Next Door is it, As It Is in Heaven, was really our missional laboratory was that neighborhood. In fact, that book is full of stories from that neighborhood. So we knew a lot of our neighbors, but we, we had not been able to have any neighbors in our neighborhood that were in the same station of life as my wife and I were. So we're empty nesters, but there's Mostly young neighbors, a few elderly neighbors in the neighborhood, some single people, but there wasn't someone, a couple that we could just, you know, hang out with a lot, go to the movies or whatever. And so when the neighbors across the street put their house up for sale, my wife started praying that there would be someone like us move in. And this became a big deal to her. I mean, she's praying about it all the time. And the house finally sells. And late one evening, the new occupants uh, started moving in. So we see the moving trucks out there. My wife's all excited. And she said, hey, I'm going to run down to the to the lo- local grocery store. I'm going to get a nice bottle of wine and bring it back. And I want you to take that over tomorrow. Welcome to the neighborhood and find out if my prayers got answered. <laughs> and because uh, she's the extrovert, so I had to do all the introvert things. Still do. So next morning, go go introverts. Yes, yeah, amen. <laughs> I am one too. Yeah, amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she comes upstairs the next morning about mid morning. I'm working at my desk, and she says, "Hey, hey, you know, Nick, come on, come on down. I want you to, I want you to take that bottle of wine across the street." I mean, she was it was a big deal to her. So I did. And I walk across the street. I, I ring the doorbell, and this fella answers the door. And it's very clearly, he's quite older than I was at the time. But I introduced myself. I pointed at our house. I said, my wife and I, Sherry, across the street. And we just wanted to welcome you to the neighborhood. And I handed him this bottle of wine. Of course, he had a big smile on his face. 
and she said, oh, you know, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And and he kind of looked over his shoulder and he said, oh, I wish my partner was here. And well, that was my first clue was that they were not exactly like us. <laughs> and then he said, and then it, he continues and he says, Richard works for an airline and he's he's in London this week. So then I knew that they definitely were not exactly like us. Uh, that, that this couple that my wife was praying for was not the couple that had moved in. And so we started talking and we just started, and then he said at some point, he said, yeah, he said, I'm home because I'm retired. And, you know, it's obvious. Next question I'm going to ask him is, oh, okay, what, what did you do? And he said, uh, he said, I was an IRS agent for 37 years. And I don't know about you, Daniel, but it's just, you, you just kind of feel funny when someone tells you that they're an IRS agent, you know, so I'm, I'm immediate. I, I just felt funny to me or strange. Well, you hear, you, know, like you I, hear, you hear about them, but you've never actually met yeah, one, right? You, you meet <laughs> yeah. one. It's like the yeah. men in black, yeah. you know? And so you exactly. just kind of tense I've up. I've heard of you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. You really <laughs> exist. So he said, yeah, I'm retired from the IRS for 37 years. We talked for a few more seconds. And then of course he returns the question. And so he asked me, he said, oh, so what do you do? Well, now, I've been around enough and I've had enough conversations on airplanes and in other settings. As you know, Daniel, being a pastor, you can be having a pretty good conversation with a stranger until they find out you're a pastor. I mean, that can go any different direction. So I kind of have created this little set of deflections. (laughs) So (laughs) the first thing I said to him was, I said, oh, well, I work for a nonprofit. He said, oh, well, what sector? So it's like, okay, that first deflection didn't work. And so I said, community transformation. And then I was hoping then we could talk about something else. But this guy's an IRS agent. He's an auditor. <laughs> so yes. he's going to keep, right asking, that, questions. <laughs> he's gonna keep yeah. asking questions. He's going to keep asking questions. Yeah. He said, oh, well, tell me more about that when I said I'm into community transformation. And then I thought, oh, well, this is, I, I just got to tell him. And I said, uh, well, I was a pastor for about 20 years. And now I, and as soon as I got to that point, he interrupted me. And in fact, the smile dropped from his face. And he said, oh, he said, are you one of those Christians that hates people like me? And, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, this, this has been going good. I've just got to know him. And I, I, I don't want him to think that I'm, you know, some judgmental Christian that, you know, is homophobic or whatever. And that, I, I want the narrative not to go there, but I didn't know how to answer this. But it's really one of those that that the answer is pri- is kind of stunning that I gave to him, but I can't take credit for it. I really do believe the Holy Spirit gave me this. So he, let's go back. He asked me, so are you one of those Christians that hate people like me? And I immediately just came out of my mouth. I said, oh, no, Jesus loved tax collectors. He had one on his team. (laughs) And his face, you should have seen his face. His mouth just (laughs) dropped open. (laughs) Like, that, what? And and I didn't say anything. I just looked at him with a straight face. And it it was literally, it was like a scene out of a movie. There was just dead silence that seemed like it was a minute. It was probably five seconds. And I'm just looking at him and he's looking at me. I've got a straight face. His mouth's open. And then all of a sudden this big smile comes across his face and he just laughed. He just started laughing. (laughs) And then I started laughing because he knew what I was doing. And and he knew that I knew what I was doing. But it really, it was a funny moment. It was a great moment. But it was a beautiful moment, too, because it reset the narrative. And in that answer, it clearly said to him was, that's not what I'm here about. You know, Bill, I want to be your friend. I really want what we want. We want to be neighbors. And and he ended up being a great neighbor. And in fact, what I didn't know at that time was that he actually was dying of cancer. 
and his partner did travel a lot. So Bill was home alone a lot. We had started a, a neighborhood monthly meal that was, it was, I mean, it was like a big uh, family meal that we had probably 25 or 30 neighbors would come over to our house every month and everybody would just, you know, potluck type of deal. And it was just a perfect timing for Bill coming into the neighborhood. And so, you know, within the last two years of his life, he was welcomed with a lot of love from his neighbors and immediately became a big part of our neighborhood. So anyway, that's my funny missional story. Yeah, I don't know what's funnier, like the answer you gave him or the fact that you stumped an IRS agent. Like that's like, you know, that has probably not happened. <laughs> First more than and once last or time. Twice. Let me yeah. let me promise you that. First and last yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Lance, let's get into let's get into a little bit of your life story. Just tell us a little bit about where you're from, faith journey, kind of how 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 it all started for you. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Texas, and one of the things about growing up in Texas, I always say, is either you are Baptist, will be Baptist, or were Baptist at some point <laughs> in time in your life. So I, that's kind of the way I grew up. In, a, in fact, my dad had gone to Southwestern Seminary and then pastored part-time a little church. And But my grandparents were Nazarene, and we were very, very close uh, relationally with my grandparents, though they lived an hour away. So every Friday evening, as soon as my dad got off work from his vocational job, uh, every other Friday, it was twice a month, as soon as he got home, we would load up the car and my mom would already have everything packed and my sister and my mom and dad would jump in the car and we'd drive an hour north and spend the weekend with my grandparents. And uh, they were part of a little church of about 60 people. And literally, everybody except the pastor and his family were my kinfolks, family members. They were all my grandparents and cousins and great uncles and great aunts. And so I, I spent half my time in a little Nazarene church growing up uh, and half my time in a, in a Baptist church. But then by the, uh, by the time I was in my teens, my parents started kind of moving into more charismatic circles, and we've kind of dove headlong into, into that, uh, which touches your background uh, as Foursquare. I ended up going to uh, Christ for the Nations Bible College. In fact, I went to—it was probably 15 years after I was out of Bible college and pastoring before I ever did seminary uh, at Fuller. But uh, that, and but that's where I met my wife was at Christ for the Nations and and uh, then we ended up planting a, in the mid nineties we ended up planting a vineyard church in the northwest suburbs of St Louis and we spent most of our pastoring time I mean over thirty years in Missouri in St Louis and then in Kansas City for quite a while so but over the last it's been about 18 years now I've it has been most of my time has been spent coaching consulting others working uh, with churches to do transitional leadership and these these type of things so uh, and in writing I do a lot of writing so that's that's what I do nowadays cool cool and so you got into the church planting world, I'm assuming, with the Baptist vineyard. denomination. No, or I was, vineyard. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Uh, vineyard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about like what that was like in terms of leadership. So you're a church planter. What are the expectations of a church planter in terms of leadership? Like, What, what does that look like in that local church setting? Well... The first thing that comes to my mind is one of my mentors who pastored a very successful large church in the Northwest and a guy I love so much. But I remember one time when I was really going through my training to go out and plant a church. And one day I asked him, what's the most important thing I need to know as a church planter? And he said, do you, want, do you really want to know? And I said, yeah. And he said two words. He said, the guy. And he's saying, you, you, and then, of course, he goes on and explains it. It's it, really, it's all about you, man. It's, it's, it all comes down to you. 
it's it's on you. You got to be a good leader. You got to be a really good teacher. You've got to be able to raise funds. You've got to be able to be a marriage expert and a family expert and all this. You got to have a magnetic personality. It's on you. And uh, I would say, Daniel, that that's pretty fair outlook of much of what leadership looks like in the church today is that it's it's really kind of a, a solo heroic tie it starts there anyway so that's really the way that leadership was formed and then it's a descending ladder from that point on down in the structure and so what did that do to you as a church planter so you're you're living in that how long were you uh, so you were at that church for quite some time or did you plant and go somewhere else like what so you're living you're living in that right yeah, I was I was there for ten years, and it was a quote successful church plan. It was what they call a parachute drop. I mean, we had had put a team together of about ten people, and we moved almost two hours away. We had we had lived west of that, and we moved about two hours away, and dropped in and just started it. You know, it's kind of like you hope somebody shows up, and they did, and so we started growing this thing. But what happened was I was, this was the mid nineties. Once again, Daniel, you will remember uh, it was, it was the height of what, and some of the young listeners probably wouldn't even remember this term. I, I don't hear this term used much, but it was the, um, uh, the seeker movement, right? And, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, when's the last time you heard anybody talk about the seeker church, you know, but it, that was uh. everything <laughs> in 1994, yeah. 1995 Yeah, was that was the seeker movement. And so, I was going for all that stuff, and this is the you know when Willow Creek was at its height, and and brick worn and purpose driven and all that, and so I I was buying into all that, and at the same time, this is when just the onslaught of leadership as a focus had just invaded the church. You know, this is in nineteen ninety four ninety five. If you were to look back fifteen or twenty years before that. If you were to walk into a coffee shop and there were five or six pastors sitting around, they probably, in their whole one-hour, two-hour conversation together, the word leadership probably wouldn't have been uttered. They would have called, been calling themselves pastors, ministers, things like that. Today, if you had a group of four or five pastors sitting in a coffee shop for an hour, the word leadership probably come up 50 times. Uh, it, that's how much it's changed. So that whole amalgamation of all that seeker church and everything and the leadership mix and all that was coming up. Uh, was, it was all about that. And we were hearing every day, everything rises or falls on leadership. Everything rises or falls on leadership. And so I'm drinking all that. I'm, I mean, I'm, I know my Amazon driver by name because he's, I'm, I'm seeing him two or three times a week because I'm getting everything I can on leadership. And after a few years of that, of just trying, of oh, it's it's all on you being the guy. It just got too weighty for me, man. I just got sick of it. You know, I got really tired of it. And at the same time, I was reading things, I was seeing things, I was meet. You know, they say don't meet your heroes, and I was meeting and rubbing shoulders with guys and seeing the way that they were treating their staffs and seeing the way they were treating others. And even some of the ways and the means and the things they said, the way that you're supposed to lead, I was like, this is not adding up with the way Jesus did it. This is not adding up with what I'm seeing in the epistles. And so I, I was like, I have to extricate myself from this and take a really fresh, look, fresh, hard look at it. And that's what I started doing, you know, like 20 years ago. And um, so it's been quite a journey. Yeah. I think that phrase you use, it's too weighty for you. I became right. too weighty. I would say that was definitely my experience after about year 10, maybe into 12. It's just, it's just too much to hold. And the more successful you are, quote unquote successful, the more you have to hold. It doesn't, you know, you don't get less to hold, right? You just have more responsibility. Yeah. But that, you know, that too weighty, I think is a great intro into the name of your book, The Atlas Factor, right? Is like, 
we really are as pastors, we're like Atlas, right? We're, we're holding everything or as leaders holding everything. And so I'm assuming that that is, uh, kind of the place from which the book was birthed. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was this metaphor that I've been thinking about a lot of times. In fact, I'd even made the statement in a book that Alan Hirsch and Rob Wagner and I wrote called The Starfish and the Spirit. I had even made a little paragraph in there about playing the role of Atlas. In fact, we had a little diagram placed in there of an Atlas figure. And inside the globe, I had listed, you know, probably eight or 10 different things that this solo heroic pastor has to be. And so I'd been thinking about this play in Atlas for a long time. And one day I had made some posts on Facebook about the body of Christ and about a disconnection that leadership typically had with Jesus as the head of the body. Basically, we've replaced Jesus as head of the body and it's not releasing, uh, it's holding back or it's disrupting the wisdom of the body. So I, I posted something along those lines. Well, I had a buddy in St. Louis that shared that on on his social media, and his chiropractor responded to it with a comment. And he said, oh yeah, this is just like supplication with the between the uh, atlas and the axis vertebras. And then he said, the problem is, is the wisdom of the brain is in the body. It just needs no interruption. And man, I read that and I was like, whoa, holy smokes. He just said something there. So, well, the Atlas popped up. And so I, uh, he, he actually, this, this particular chiropractor had written a little book. And so I got his book, and then I ended up reading three, four more books on chiropractic just to try to understand the body. Well, come to find out, he, uh, this particular chiropractor, there's probably there's a very limited number of chiropractors that focus only on what they call upper cervical care. And so they only focus on the C1 and the C2 vertebras, the axis vertebra and the atlas vertebra. Well, the atlas is the top, that's C1. And it's kind of that concave, semicircle, kind of saucer-shaped spot where the brain, the brainstem, sits down in and then connects to the C2 and then so on and so forth with the vertebras. And so the reason that these chiropractors only focus on those two is that they believe if they can get that relationship right between the C1 and the C2, thusly the rest, then everything else will take care of itself. That's what they say. And so their experience has been, and like I said, I read all these books and there's been incredible claims of everything from high blood pressure to even some forms of cancer, even and deafness and just tons of maladies being uh, corrected. And it's why it's because uh, we are neurological. And so neurologic means that the wisdom is in the nerves. That's where we get the term neurologic. And so once, just like Dr. Weller had said on that post he made on my buddy's social media, is that the brain is in the body. It just needs no interruption. So that became the metaphor for the Atlas Factor. And so the subtitle is Shifting Leadership onto the Shoulders of Jesus. And then you start looking, you look at Isaiah 9, uh, where uh, you know we have this Christmas card verse, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. But then it says that the government will be upon his shoulders, right? And the end of his peace, there will be it, it will be no more. I mean, it it we start getting all this when the government's on his shoulders. And then you think about what Jesus told his disciples. Uh, he says, "Come to me, you who are weary and heaven laden." and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, this throws us onto the big shoulders of the ox again, is that yoke up with Jesus because he is that giant strong ox, and really all the weight's going to be on his shoulders if we'll let it. And I remember so many times reading that particular verse as a pastor and going, 
man, I can't even relate to this verse because this yoke does not seem easy and this burden of pastoring does not seem light. And, you know, you look at stats today. I just saw a fresh one just this week that said four to 5,000 pastors are leaving the ministry every month. And so all this pressure of being this great leader, it's killing pastors. And then on the other hand, it's causing some of them to completely fall and fall apart in scandal. And along with that, everybody, quote, below them, staff members, volunteers, a lot of time are suffering from the scandalous ways of all this hierarchy. And it's you you go and you read the New Testament with fresh eyes, you read the things that Jesus said, and you read the things that Paul and the other epistle writers said. There's no way you could formulate these leadership systems that we have today from that. So you have to look from another source to find where they came from. And well, lo and behold, that source comes from the world. It comes from the world system. The very thing that Jesus said, it's not going to be that way uh, among you. And so when he sits his disciples down, when they're jockeying for position, and he says, hey, the Gentiles, which is a metaphor, right? I mean, it's it's the world system. Every scholar would agree that's what that terms mean in there. If, he, if Jesus would have been in the Old Testament times, he would have probably said, the Babylonians or the Egyptians. So it's just, hey, the world system exercises domination over one another, or they lord it over one another. Really, you're taking the place of the Lord. And he says, it will not be so among you. And we have to be honest and look at the majority of our leadership systems in the church today and say, it is so among us. The very thing Jesus forbade is the very thing that that we do ad nausea in the church. And so, you know, we just see it's almost like every month you see some well-named, highly platformed pastor or faith-based organizational leader get exposed or go down or whatever. It used to be back in the televangelist days, back in the 80s, it, it, it was always some sexual deal. Uh, now... Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just these guys are getting finally exposed and canned for abusive leadership of bullying and dominating in the very things that Jesus said. And so the answer always seems to be, as the dust is kind of clearing on each one of these, is, oh, well, we just need to be better leaders. We just need to do it better. And at some point we need to say, hey, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And at some point, we had to say, it's the system. The system is the issue. And this was what Jesus was trying to be on about, was trying to bring a system that comes from the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of darkness. So I kind of went off there, brother. Sorry. No, dude. <laughs> dude, I'm loving it. Like, just keep going. I'm going to go. I'm going to order me an Uber, uh, Uber Chipotle, <laughs> and I'm just going to hang out. <laughs> Listen, I'm loving it, man. <laughs> I uh, let me let me just uh, let me just ask a few questions to kind of kind of uh, help me and help our audience kind of get to the the kind of heart of what you're saying, the core of what you're saying. So, in a sentence or two, what do you mean by we've replaced the headship of Jesus? Like, what have we replaced it with? Just like real cut to the chase, a sentence or two. Yeah. Well, think about it. What 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 are most pastors called in a local church? What's their <laughs> title? Senior <laughs> pastor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some of them will describe themselves as CEOs, but they're called senior pastors or lead pastors. In fact, in some circles, they're called the head pastor. Well, you you don't find that terminology anywhere in this in the in the scripture except for Jesus. That's Jesus's title. He's the head of the church. Paul says it many times. Jesus is the head of the church. The only time we ever see any hierarchy of a pastor is when Peter says Jesus is the chief shepherd. So uh, that that job is occupied. There's no openings in any church anywhere for a senior pastor because Jesus already is the one. He's the only one. So I think we have to start being honest. We've got to really start getting honest and quit disobeying Jesus and listen to him. In fact, the word disobey literally means 
lack of hearing. I mean, you know, how many times when you were little did your mom or dad say to you, did you hear what I said? <laughs> Are you listening to me? And I and I can only imagine how Jesus is saying that. So disobeying is just an, in, it literally in the Greek means inattentive listening. And uh, we get a big problem with that in the church okay. as leaders. So we've, so we've taken this job description or this this position and we've inserted in to you know kingdom structures or cultures and it's it's like uh, it's not intended to work that way right so you also make this statement that the brain is in the body so that when i hear that i you know i studied organizational leadership as well uh graduate level i'm i'm hearing that we've cut off organizational genius right like we're we're not we're not able to take yes. advantage of of that right because it's all it's funneling into one person T- tell tell us in like a sentence or two what is the effect of that on the church that you're seeing yeah it's it's immobilizing and so it's it's paralysis and so we've got these incredibly gifted people all around us that could offer and give so much more but when a leader becomes the bottleneck and everything has to go through him or her or a couple of them at the top, it slows movement down. Uh, I mean, could you imagine if you were walking along somewhere and you stumble into a campfire and your foot gets in the fire and if your fire had to say, I got to check with the head and see if it's all right if I move us out of this fire, you know, and then he has to start working his way up the the ladder. No, who makes the decision? That foot makes the decision, right? That that little pinky toe makes the decision to remove itself. And this is the way that the body works. And yet, so we need to spend a lot more time looking at the body and biology rather than business and studying business and the hierarchy of it. Because what it does is it creates paralysis. And that's the very thing that happens when you're out of alignment. When that atlas vertebra is out of alignment with everything else, that's where you get paralysis. So I've got a couple of buddies that, and I knew these young men very well. I watched them grow up. I was very close to their dads. It, both of them, 17 years old. Uh, had accidents, one a motorcycle accident, one a on a Friday night on the football field, paralyzed from the waist down. Today, if you go and visit these young men, as I have, if they're at home and if they're not in their wheelchair, if they're sitting in a on a couch or somewhere else, when you look at them, you'd have no idea that they're, you know, that there's a problem, that there's paralysis taking place because actually all their organs are fine. Their bodily functions are fine. Their muscles are fine, but they're atrophied in their legs because they're not getting the exercise. What's happened? They're, they're paralyzed. Other, other than that, everything's fine and is ready to go. Where's the problem? The problem is this one place between the vertebras that's cut off the intelligence and the connections between the head and the body. Well, effectually, that's exactly what happens in the church today is people that are well gifted, have a lot of knowledge, have a lot of wisdom, have a lot of experience, are not allowed to be free because there's a disconnection because somebody else is playing Atlas rather than the true Atlas. That's good. I've had to repent for that just in my own 15, 17 years of pastoral ministry. Just like, Lord, that was me. Like I... Yeah, me I too, somehow, man. You know, and, and and I thought I was doing the right thing, and and that's what you're taught to do. You know, that's like, yeah, you come in, and and I'm now, you know, kind of a little Jesus in this congregation. So the last thing I would I would want to just have you um, comment on before we get into so what can we do? You know, it's easy to it's easy to say this is all yeah. that's wrong, right? It's 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 another the deconstruction's thing to say. the easy yeah. the deconstruction's exactly. the easy part. My my wife yeah, and yeah, I we right? watch these these home shows and there's this one I think it's called I wrecked my house and it's typically uh, these guys that have watched a little little too many DIY shows and they're yeah. like oh I'm gonna you know I'm gonna redo my kitchen and they totally rip the kitchen apart and their wives horrified because then the guys don't know how to put it back together 
You know, it's like, no, you yeah. you better be able to put this thing back together. Yeah. So I'm with you. Well, you who have built your own house, like, I don't know, 27 times or something like that. <laughs> like that's a whole, <laughs> you, you, you can say that, right? So I, I do want to spend some time on like, what can we do? You know, what, what, yeah. what is, what do you see working? What are, what are different ways? But one of the things that I read in the book, that's just really, really been just stuck in my mind. I just can't get it out of my mind. And it's really been a cause of repentance for me just in my own prayer and time with Jesus is you do a bit of a literature review in like the first couple of chapters of, of the word leadership in English and how it's been used Uh and where it came from. But one of the things you mentioned is that one of the first instances of the word leadership in English, it was used to exercise dominion. Like that's what leadership meant. And I was just struck with like, oh my gosh, the promise in Genesis was that we should exercise dominion over creation not one another and and look what we've done to each other right uh-huh. so can yeah. you give us a little bit more about the dominion yeah you know kind of that whole thing and 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 how's that playing out today yeah so so yeah you know and and, and you mentioned the genesis text and of course is the very thing jesus says in matthew 20 is the gentiles exercise dominion over one another and so what you're referring to that i mentioned in the book there is in the 1928 uh, the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, where uh, he defines a leader, and it's one who exercises dominion. And I remember reading that. I was horrified. I was like, this is the very thing Jesus said not to do. And it is the very thing that happens in, in most leadership systems. And so let me first of all say this, too, because a lot of people will say, oh, Lance is saying we shouldn't have leadership. That's not what I'm saying. You've read my book. You know, I... I'm emphatic about that. We need leadership, but it's what leadership do we need? So we got to redefine it. But the dominion thing is, and this is why, once again, that some of the translations would say, Jesus is saying the Gentiles lord over one another, because that is what happens in a lot of this management theory. See, the thing is, is that most of what we call leadership today is really management. It's managing others. It goes back to uh, Peter Drucker, 1966, famous book the effective executive, that got imported straight into the church, and a lot of pastors have it on their shelves today, but really it's management theory, and it goes even further back. Actually, the father of that was Frederick Winslow Taylor from Bethlehem Steel, who wrote a book called The Scientific Principles of Management, and that's what most leadership is today. It's, it's, it's It's a delineation between the bosses and the bossed and the employees and the thinkers and the doers and the 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 tellers and the doers and so what happens is people get managed we treat people in a paternalistic way we treat people on their staffs as if even though the fact was that they were able to shave their face or shave their legs and drive safely to work that day and hold down a mortgage and raise kids and do all this but then we treat them like children when they're at, on the job side as if they don't have the acumen to manage their own schedule, to manage their own time. So we dominate them. So you end up with one or two people on a staff that are the only ones that have certain person privileges, that only uh, ones that are deemed adult enough to be able to set their own schedules. And I'm talking about the senior leaders. I'm talking about the executive leadership. Typically, it's the senior pastor and the executive pastor. And these two usually boss everybody else and manage everybody else. And my question is, why? Where did you come up with this? Because you sure didn't get it from the New Testament. You sure didn't get it from Jesus. So we treat people this way and we lord over one another. You say, well, what does lording over one another look like? Well, for instance, summarily firing someone. How is that lording over one another? Well, you just affected their life. You affected that that individual's life. If they're married, you affected their spouse. You've affected their children. Likely, it's going to cause them to have to uproot and move. You have lorded over someone. Well, I would say no one should have the right and the power, especially in the church, to have that ability to dominate anyone. Well, people say, well, then how do you hire and fire? Well, we do systems for that. And um, 
that's one of the things about the Atlas Factor. I really have filled it up with a lot of the systems and the processes and the procedures of ways that we can live our way out of this and not manage one another, uh, not micromanage, but create self-management systems, create advice processes so that people can think on their feet and bring the joy back to their work and bring the creativity back to their work. But the thing is, is that we've not been creative enough. We've not thought outside the the domination box of what leadership could look like in more of a plural type of leading and more of a co-worker type of leading, which is the terms that you see in the New Testament, co-labor, co-worker. You never see the implication of one person being a boss and another person being an employee. You have to read that into the text to get that anywhere into your leadership forms that come out of the New Testament. So let's let's transition into like what it could look like, what maybe would be the hope to be more in line biblically, you know, with some like the biblical ideal of things. So let's say that Lance Ford <laughs> is the head of a network or a church or something like that. What does it look like? Right? Like how does it operate? What does the leadership structures look like? So give it, give us a little vision of the future. My first thoughts are that we have to redefine our job descriptions to ourselves first off and then to the rest of the, the community that we're a part of. So I have to, first of all, rather than looking at myself as everybody's boss that's there to tell everybody how to do things, I'm going to go to Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher that's given from Jesus, the head, as gifts to the body. And well, first off, Ephesians 4 is not a ministry text. It's not a, quote, leadership text. It's a body and gifted text. So, you know, a person that's a second grade elementary teacher, she has one of those gifts. A person that's a plumber has one of those gifts. A person that's a doctor or a lawyer has at least one of those gifts. So we're all gifted, and this is what Paul promises if we'll function this way. we can have. This is the key to having maturity and growth in the church. So, And he says that part of the job description there is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is a, a word in the Greek that means to build up and or resource Okay, so I am there. My job, let's say I'm the senior guy. My job every morning when I wake up, coming out of my prayer time, should be, Lord, how can I equip my fellow workers around me today? Because they are fellow workers. They don't work for me. So that's one of the mistakes right there. They do not work for me. We are all fellow servants of the king. We all work for the chief shepherd, Jesus. Now, my role may be different. I may have you know, more broader responsibilities. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of what leadership is. But my function is not here to boss and tell everybody how to do everything, when to do everything, where to do everything, when to start, when to stop. My job here is to equip that person to do what the Lord has called her or him to do in the best way. So I'm going to focus a lot more on her than I am myself. And this is what Paul said. Don't think on your own things, but think of others. Think about, you know, what you can do for others. That's the servant mentality. So my first job is to think of myself as an equipper. And alongside of that, even really above that, is to think of myself as a servant. I mean, the word servant's used over 260 times in the New, in the New Testament. The word leader's used like twice. But what do we focus on? I mean, when's the last time you ever were invited to a servantship conference? I never heard of one. Actually, right? Actually, I was once. <laughs> Good. At Gonzaga. Good. They need to bring Gonz- it back. <laughs> I, I went to Gonzaga, and it's where uh, they, they do the Robert Greenleaf, you know, the servant leadership. Yeah, okay. Well, a, then you a, would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you probably wouldn't have found yeah. one uh, sponsored by the church anywhere, right? Because we're all about leadership. Let's just, let's just say when I, when I first was introduced to, you know, servant leadership ideas for Robert Greenleaf, I was like, I look like the dog, you know, when like it doesn't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And it kind of moves its head to the side. I'm like, how does this work? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm from Texas. We call that standing there like uh, looking like a calf at a new gate. So, 
Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> you have to redefine yourself as, first of all, a, ser- uh, a servant, and then your job is to equip others. And so I'm going to constantly be in spending time with the people that I have some responsibility in their life to say, what what can I do to help this person shine? What can I do to help this person be their best? Because I have to assume this, and here's the other thing. I have to assume since that person is, the, so let's say my youth pastor or our children's pastor or the worship pastor, that person is the one that's closest to the work. Does that mean I can't speak into their realm? No, absolutely I can. But the thing is, they can speak into my realm too. But I, they're closest to the work, so I'm going to assume if, if, if I was confident enough to bring them on the team, then they're equipped and they're called just as much as I'm equipped and I'm called. So that changes things from, and that once again, that goes back to rather than dominating people, you're serving people. Oh, you mentioned the systems, self-management, stuff like that. So we're, 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 we're making a paradigm shift in our thinking as leaders of, of what we're, what we're actually doing, but then what systems are we putting in place so as that we're not yeah. domineering one another and we are, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, we are focusing in on discipling people, right? Like, so how, how, do, what are the systems? Yeah. The first system is self-management. Okay. So we're allowing everybody to self-manage. We're assuming that they're called, they're equipped, that they have the acumen, that they have the intelligence of the head in them, that they, that they, they are, that they can do their job. Okay, now once again, that doesn't mean I can't speak into it, but that means that I'm going to allow people to set their schedule that they don't, li- listen, especially as a senior guy, wh- why do I have the right to go in and out of the office on my own, but this person has to go in and they have to, you know, move the little magnet over to the where they're in right on the whiteboard where they're at. Oh, I'm going to be at Starbucks for the next hour. Do I have to do that? Why, why should she have to do it? Okay. She's an adult. I'm going to trust her. So you're, this is all backed up by trust, trust your people and trust them to self-manage that they don't have to. It's just so, you know, it's like so many of these systems, uh, they have to, uh, the staff has to do a weekly report to the executive pastor. Oh, here's what I accomplished this week. Here's what my goals were here. You know, all these little check marks. Why? Why? Well, somebody has to be accountable. They're, they are accountable. They're accountable to their fellow workers. And that's a big pro, uh, part of it, too, is instituting true mutual accountability. Everybody is accountable. And this is why I say, and I'm really thorough about this in the writings, is that this form of accountability is a much more higher form of accountability than what we have today. In most systems today of management systems, you're only accountable to who's above you. In mutual accountability, you're accountable to your team. So I do have to carry my weight. The decisions I make, I have to answer for those decisions. But I don't have to answer to one person or two persons. And the thing is, too, it's a two-way street. And this is why we have to eliminate this idea of rank-based authority in our churches is that that senior-level people, they should, they're just as much accountable to the other people, too, to the uh custodian or janitor as they are to anybody else they should be accountable and so they should i should anybody ought to be able to ask anybody anything at any time without the fear of reprisal or threat and uh in in most of these heavy hierarchy systems there is a lingering threat that's in the air all the time and so uh, once again this eliminates that the lord never leads by fear I mean, what, what do we see over and over and over and over throughout the scripture? Fear not, fear not, be at peace, be anxious for nothing. But in so many of these leadership-centric cultures, it's, it's overlaced with kind of this air of, this thick air of, man, you better not mess up. You, you, you need to pretty much be perfect or you're going to be threatened at all times. It has no place in the church. It has no place in the body. That's toxic. I didn't read anything in the book about this, so maybe this question. I don't know, you know, if if, if you would need a little more time to think about it. I mean, I'm assuming you have some thoughts, but how would this change our funding models? Because right now, you know, it's the senior leader kind of living off the 
tithes and offerings of the congregation, but there's the kind of this transactional relationship that's happening, right? Like I'm doing all the work and then you're going to pay me for it. So if we're making these shifts into uh, self-management and I'm more of a servant and I'm equipping people, like what effect, if any, does that have on our current funding models? I don't think that has an effect one way or the other. I, I believe that systemically, because I can tell you, you know, I've studied Gentile businesses. Okay, I've I've studied secular businesses, huge ones. Some that have four, five, six thousand employees that completely operate in in everything that I just said here. So I don't think it really has any bearing one way or another on the funding model. I really don't. It's we're talking just about operational models here. Give me as kind of a last question, and we'll wrap it up. Give me uh, just one example of where you think this has been working, or have you seen it yet? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll give you one. The first one that comes to mind, and there's several, but the Kansas City Underground. And I know you've heard of the Kansas City Underground. So the Kansas City Underground would be one which is a network of micro church movements, but it's really led, in fact, Rob Wagner, my buddy and co-conspirator on a few things, was a, a lead teaching pastor at a couple of gigantic churches. I don't even call them mega churches. They were giga churches. And so, I mean, you're talking about a guy with huge leadership capacity and the underground network that has several hundred micro churches in Kansas City, pretty large network, totally functions this way. And it totally empowers a multiplicity. And the thing is, in that microchurch model in particular, funding-wise, it is a, a cheaper model because you've got so many people that are, you know, not vocationally being being paid to do what they do. They do have a few that are, but uh, they totally function this way in everything that I just said. Lance, thank you so much for the time, my friend. I, I really do appreciate it. If someone wanted to get your book, read more about it, maybe connect with you, just maybe they're they're a yeah. pastor and they're looking to transform their church, uh, how would they go ahead and do that? Yeah, well, one of the easiest ways would be info at the Atlas Factor if they want to uh, theatlasfactor.com. If they want to email me directly, they could do that info at theatlasfactor.com. Uh, they can also access the website theatlasfactor.com that. Uh, has a lot of connections on it too. So, uh, yeah, we, uh, I'd love to connect with, with, with anybody that, that reaches out. I try to do it pretty quick, get back with you. So that's, that's kind of how I spend my days. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lance. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Appreciate the insight. I, I have that copy you sent me. I so badly want to send it to everybody, but I'm like, I can't, uh, I got to wait for the book to come out. So looking forward February to it. February 16th. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate you having me, bro. Yeah, yeah, appreciate <laughs> it. So, for uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Only on a Sunday. Please give Lance a jingle. Check out his book, February sixteenth. I'm about two chapters away from finishing it, and I've loved every every word, every sentence. So, um, we will see you all next time. Mm -hmm.